Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Colin McGinn about Philosophy of Language, the Classics Explained, in which he provides an accessible commentary on some of the foundational texts of modern philosophy of language, from Frege to Grice. We talk about some of the issues raised and the historical direction of philosophy of language, as well as what the future holds for the discipline. Today I'm talking to Colin McGinn about his book, Philosophy of Language, the Classics Explained, in which he discusses, clarifies and assesses some of the foundational texts in the field. Colin, you've published extensively on a wide range of philosophical topics. What brought about this book? Well, I first started lecturing on philosophy of language when I just finished being a graduate student in Oxford, and this would have been in 1974. And I used to teach uh, the usual uh, topics in that in a course in London. But there didn't at that time exist any satisfactory text that covered uh, those topics. Um, so I, we had to use original sources all the time, and the obvious, and I would try to explain them in the classes, the obvious problem was that many students found them very difficult to understand um, with good reason. And at the time, uh, I did think about writing a, an introductory text in philosophy of language, but in fact, I ended up writing one in philosophy of mind and instead didn't write one in philosophy of language. Well, I always thought it would be a good idea, but you know, it, was, it's, it would be, take time and uh, have to do it. So uh, I didn't do it. Then when I, you know, ended up teaching in in uh, Miami, I uh, was teaching philosophy of language again, and I would use an anthology of texts, you know, the classic texts, Frege, Russell, Kripke, Donnellan, you know, Kaplan, and so forth, Tarski, Davidson. And again, the students would be assigned to read the the articles, and I would explain them in the in the class as clearly as I as I could. But the students found the articles very difficult to understand. So they were not specialists in, in that, and they are difficult to understand. It didn't, it's not as if it, I, I never found them easy to understand. It took me a long time to understand them. So I would explain them anyway. One day, toward the end of the course, a student in the class said, yeah, it would be very good if, if you would write a book containing what you are saying in the class so students could understand better these, these readings. I said, well, that's a very good idea. And I wish somebody would do it. But I don't want to do it because it would be a lot of work and, you know, it's a bit boring, you know, for me to have to write a book like that because I've got other things I might prefer to do. So he said to me, um, well, I've been recording the lectures, uh, so I could transcribe them for you and then you wouldn't have to write it. I said, oh, that sounds a pretty decent idea. I was a bit concerned that they might be a bit scrappy, you know, being just transcriptions. Anyway, he, I said, all right, let's do it. So we, he set about transcribing, as he said, transcribing my lectures, and then eventually produced a typescript for me. Turned out that he didn't actually transcribe the lectures. He kind of semi-transcribed them. At some points, he would summarize them. In other words, he would use his own words to catch what I was saying. And since he was an undergraduate student, uh, they weren't always completely accurate. Uh, and there are other issues with the text. Anyway, it ended up that when I revised the text, I had to revise probably almost every sentence in it. 
it took me a lot of time and work to do it. So I wouldn't say it took me the same amount of time it would have taken to write it, but it took a lot of time and effort to write it. So I, uh, that's how I produced the book in the end. That's why it's, it's, if you read it, it's not, it's, it sounds more conversational than other books I would write because it was based on my, my lectures and the lectures were intended to be as clear as possible to the undergraduates and to explain everything from the ground up because most of the students were not majors in philosophy. They certainly didn't know philosophy of language. So I didn't, I couldn't introduce any concepts that they and assume they understood them, so I'd have to explain everything. And so that's what the book is like. It's a, it's a series of lectures in which I try to explain the classic texts, which are difficult, um, in a way that doesn't presuppose any prior knowledge of the philosophy of language, and indeed no prior knowledge of anything in analytic philosophy. And that's what the book sets out to do. So the uh, texts you discussed were the ones that you were focusing on in the course initially? They were, they, exactly. They were, they, I, I would set readings um, which I thought could be covered in a typical semester, trying to make them as somewhat connected so that what was they learned earlier they could use later, so, it's, so, so there's some continuity. Uh, there's a little bit of arbitrariness in, in the selections. I could have chosen other texts from the, the anthology I was using. I just chose those as being, I thought, the most useful ones. So this, some people might wonder, you know, I, I don't have anything on speech act theory, Austin or Searle or that kind of thing. It would be nice to have that. Somebody else said to me the other day, it would be nice to have a chapter on Wittgenstein. Yes, all of that would be nice, but that would have required writing extra chapters, which I wasn't using in the course either. I mean, I, I didn't, in the course I was teaching, I didn't teach Wittgenstein or speech act theory. So I would have had to write separate chapters and it would be longer and, you know, I would have to go into other subject matter. So I just restricted it to, to what I thought was a nice selection of interrelated topics, which would be cumulative in the exposition, and keep it under manageable manageable size. Sure, yes. Um, I wondered, because uh, obviously part of the reason for selecting these texts uh, and wanting to explain them is that they're quite difficult or quite inaccessible for students. But I wondered if you felt that some of them had also been misunderstood or misrepresented in the literature itself. Well, there are two kinds of literature we might mean here. One would be the sort of technical professional literature, and one would be the pedagogical expository literature, so a typical philosophy of language textbook. And there are a few of those out there now. I would look at those and, and wonder whether to use them, but I found in general they didn't, to me, explain enough for the undergraduates to gain an understanding of the primary uh, readings. So they, they were not, they didn't serve that purpose. And I didn't want to just assign uh, a, a textbook which would be glancingly connected to those primary readings. I thought the students should read the original articles, but they were not explanatory enough. Uh, so I thought that they were not adequate from the point of view of, of that task. As to the question of the technical literature, no, I, I, in that case, you know, with a, with a couple of exceptions, I think that the, the literature out there discussing the classics is pretty accurate. You know, there were a couple of points in the book where I, especially with Frege, for instance, where I tackle his notion of sense and make various distinctions, which I think haven't been seen and and made in uh, even the most advanced literature on the subject. But in the other areas, I would say typically they've been covered quite well. Um, Tarski, perhaps a bit less so. I think there's a bit of mysticism about Tarski that 
I wanted to dispel. You know, a couple of other points uh, about Kaplan, I thought, needed a bit of explanation. But I I didn't, it's not that I thought that they'd been generally misunderstood. I thought they'd been generally pretty well understood by, well understood by professional philosophers of language. The problem arose in whether there was anything that explains that understanding to people who don't already have it. It takes years to acquire that kind of understanding of, of those texts. And I taught them the subject many times. Each time I taught it, I would teach it slightly differently and I would see different aspects of the texts I was using. It is going back almost 40 years, you see, of, of teaching that subject, among, of course, among other subjects too. So there was always, there was often new, new aspects to talk about. Um, and, you know, it was a, even for me, it was something where I was continually learning new things and seeing new things about the text. And then I would, you know, convey those things to the students. This is, uh, this is perhaps a dangerous question to ask, but I wondered, it's my impression coming to this from a linguistics perspective that compared to a lot of other work in linguistics, indeed these, these sort of foundational philosophical texts are shrouded in a certain amount of mysticism in that secondary expository literature. Uh, do you feel that's, is that some sort of characteristic of the way philosophy is handled in general by people who are trying to use it or understand it in other fields? Or do you feel that, is it the case that linguistic philosophy is particularly prone to misunderstanding or prone to a certain amount of uh, confusion? I think, it, this, I think the subject matter is difficult in itself. That's why philosophers took a long time even to get around to discussing it the way they started to in the 20th, in the 20th century, uh, a lot of it was bound up with the developments of formal logic, which itself had a very long gestation period, you know, from Aristotle through to Frege. So the subject matter is very difficult. Uh, and the people who write about it were struggling with the, that subject matter themselves, and including, you know, luminaries such as Frege and Russell, you know, people with very high IQ. So they wrote about it in, in a certain way, as it, usually as they were discovering new things uh, which hadn't even been anticipated in the whole history of philosophy. So it was very difficult. Now, when people come to those writings in their history, the first readers of the initial text were baffled by them. They couldn't follow. Frege was not a, a noted philosopher for many years, 50, 60 years after he wrote his seminal text, until people finally managed to absorb the novelty of what he was saying and the detail of what he was saying. There's the famous story of Russell's paper on denoting, which, you know, the theory of descriptions is explained. He sent it to mind, you know, to be published, and the editor rejected it because he couldn't understand it. It's a very difficult paper. Uh, all of it's difficult. Uh, so it's not, it's, so it's understandable. Now, where there's difficulty, there's, there's sometimes mysticism. <laughs> you know, people, people find it, they, they sense that there's something deep in there, but they don't quite get it themselves. And so they gesture a little bit, you know, uh, and, and they and they say, well, you know, this is perhaps I can't really explain this with complete clarity, even to myself. But I'm sure it's fine because these are men of great genius. You know, so let's not worry about it. I wanted to avoid all of that. I think this is very true of Tarski. I think a lot of people got a bit bemused by Tarski. And it's easier to explain Tarski than people think. And, and I was a graduate student. People would, you know, use these Tarski and catchphrases like convention T, you know, and that kind of thing, and conditions of material adequacy. And there was a, a slightly kind of uh, reverent and mystical attitude with those phrases. But they have a pretty straightforward meaning if you're willing to just cut through 
all of that. You know, and just say what what's he actually saying? So my guiding light in this was to say, you know, always, well, what's this writer actually saying about this? And can I put it straightforwardly without relying on phrases whose meaning is perhaps a little bit elusive? And I, I actually think that in that book, I did that throughout the book without exception. I don't think I at any point relied on any hand waving or, you know, vagueness about anything. I think uh, I explained everything. In detail. So that's why the book is written the way it is. And I, I go through the text, I quote the texts, and I relentlessly dissect what's in those key paragraphs in Frege or in whatever it is. And, you know, and really tear them up, take them apart so that you can see, you know, exactly what was being claimed and, and what the transitions were. And that involves me also, of course, in sometimes questioning the reasoning and the cogency of what the authors were actually saying. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's reassuring to, but it's encouraging to see this this exegesis. It's also reassuring to know that it's possible within a reasonable space to to articulate it as clearly as you do. It's 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 almost surprising that it is possible because there's such a history of of not being able to do it very well. You know, there's a perfectly okay expositions, you know, of things, but I I often feel that they they don't really get to the root of the subject quite often. The theory of description, say, in Russell, I often think people don't quite get to what Russell's motivations were, how Russell understood it. They just trot out the formulas, you see. Oh, here's Russell's theory of descriptions, and you write out the logical formula that captures it. But unless you understand, you know, the deeper motivation behind that, what Russell was trying to do, it's mystifying to people. They don't see the relevance. So I think that's what I was attempting. I was trying to recover the original motivations of the authors and, you know, make them clear to readers so they wouldn't be mystified by any of it and say, oh, now, now, I've, now I understand this. That was, that was the aim. And I, I think that I did, uh, I think I did do that. Yes, indeed. Um, I'd like to turn, if I may, then to the first chapter in which you discuss uh, Fregon's sense and reference. Mm. Not least because, although the paper is also called back to from various points subsequently, as one might expect, I, I was particularly interested by how you contextualise that paper in, in terms of Frege's own prior work. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it fair to ask, when, when do you see the breakthrough in that in that particular paper? Well, people sometimes when they ex- when they expound on central reference, they don't uh, make reference to the departure from Frege's early work that that paper represents. So at the very beginning of the article, that's where Frege explains how he's now departing from what he said in the Begriffschrift about identity statements. And I think it's important to understand, the mo- again, the motivations for the theory of sense and reference arising from the rejection of the earlier theory, which had to do with metalinguistic accounts of identity statements, where you're saying that the name A and the same B and the name B have the same reference. So, so there is in, in an identity statement a reference to the names which are contained in it. And he ends up rejecting that and substituting for that the theory of of sense. So I thought that it was important to see the discontinuity with the Begriffschrift, but also to see that he was tackling the same kinds of problems. And that enabled me to raise at certain points the potential criticism that some of his own objections to his earlier theory seem to apply to his current theory. In other words, he objects to the earlier theory by saying that identity statements are not really about names, they're about objects, which are, which are names in them refer to. 
But his own theory of sentient reference looks, makes it look dangerously as if identity statements are about senses, not about objects referred to, uh, and which seems to be a very similar problem to the one that he started out. And I wanted to indicate various points in the article where that issue comes up. The, that article is extremely dense at the beginning in terms of what's going on in the argument. It has to be taken very slowly and, and carefully. Otherwise, people just dive in, you know, and say, well, here's a theory of sense and reference, and they start giving the description theory of names, and you don't understand where all that's coming from and what the point of it's supposed to be. You make a point later in the chapter that, that when Frege's proposal is, is considered carefully, that it generates, well, as you put it, consequences that are potentially rather detached from anything that has a clear articulation. Yeah. I always wonder... I, this is rather a general question. Um, how worried we ought to be about that? Because I, I feel that that's something from an from an applied perspective that, that kind of concerns me about some proposals. Um, but people seem to differ in their own tastes on that point. Well, it's a delicate question. I think you know. Some, sometimes uh, the demands of theory require you to <clears throat> go in a certain direction, which seems counterintuitive. You know, physics provides many examples of this. I mean, it revises our common sense and we end up believing quite weird things about the world, but there are good empirical and theoretical reasons for that. So it, it's just in the case of, of Frege's theory, one sometimes feels that the theory is, is, is itself producing conclusions which don't have any, any, any independent support. It's just that that's what you have to say if you accepted some of the basic principles, such as that the reference of a complex expression depends on the reference of its parts. And when Frege gets to the case of oblique contexts, he runs into a problem with that. And he has to start saying that names, say, in oblique contexts, refer to their ordinary senses in order to preserve the principle that reference always depends on the reference of the past. And then you get this strange, and then, of course, once you've got the idea that words, names in oblique contexts refer to their senses, and you've got the sense-reference distinction, then they, those names also need a sense which is distinct from their reference, and now you get this idea of another sense that's been has to be introduced, and that and that point that issue reg regresses because now we have another name which can occur in another oblique context and require another sense, and you end up with an infinite hierarchy of senses, and you can't say what any of these are. There's no intuitive way to explain what any of those senses are. So the initial explanations of sense that Frege gives, such as a description, something like that, there's nothing you can say about this. It, lo it looks like it's just being produced by the theory and doesn't have any independent support. And that's worrying now. It may be that, you know, in, in the light of all considerations, that's acceptable, but it's certainly something that needs to be highlighted, that we, we seem to be spinning in a bit of a void there, and we've lost contact with the intuitive basis that motivated the whole theory to start with. Another aspect of Frege, which, which this, this point's been made, is he has this famous doctrine that the truth value of a sentence is an object that the sentence refers to. And everybody hearing that thinks, what? <laughs> what does that mean? How can a sentence be a name of an object? And then you say, what object are they a name of? And then Frege tells you, they're the name of a truth value. And you say, but a truth value isn't an object. And Frege says, oh, yes, it is, because according to my theory, every complete expression has a reference. And if it's complete, the reference is an object. So the truth value must be an object. And you think that's just, it just seems to be running out of control. And Frege's just saying things which make the theory work. And things he's saying seem baffling and it's highly counterintuitive. And also they do seem to be alternatives to that way of speaking that he doesn't consider. In the book, you then go on to talk about uh, Kripke's 
criticism of uh, Frege's theory of sense for names in the following chapter, which, as you note, you know, skips ahead some 70 or more years. Is there is there a sort of lack of response to, to Frege's work in that interim? Um, you mentioned the, the point that his, his work wasn't appreciated until much later in the 20th century. Well, in the case of, the, of names and descriptions, Russell, you see, had essentially the same view of names, and that and that was much more widely known at that period. So there was a lack of response to that theory, only in the sense that it was accepted during that period. It was an orthodox view. So both Frege and Russell, it was usually called the Frege-Russell theory of names. So for all those decades, that was what it was called, and it was assumed to be if anything ever is in philosophy, a definitively correct theory of names. There was very little, there was no, almost no dissent from it. There was a little bit, you know, some people introduced the cluster theory, like John Searle, but it was essentially in the same spirit. Now, around the late 60s, early 70s, various people started to question that outlook on, on names and so forth. And the people who began to question it, are not the ones that people think of today, because they always think of Kripke, but before Kripke, there was Arthur Pryor, Keith Donnelland, David Kaplan, um, and probably others that I can't remember, who were starting to worry that there was something amiss with the description theory and making various objections to it. So when Kripke published Naming and Necessity, he kind of put it all together in a very clear, nice way. Um, you know, he has, a, he has a very good way of setting out an argument. He was questioning what was had been orthodox for a very long time. That's why I skip ahead in the book those years because, I mean, if Kripke lived, you know, earlier, he might have said it soon after Fragan Central Reference appeared, but he didn't. So it took a long time for people to sort of wake up to these points. Now, you know, there's a, there's a lot of question about whether or not Kripke's critique of Fragan is finally successful, and people tried to resuscitate the description theory. And in my chapter, I point out various ways in which you might try to keep. A description theory, though admittedly not one uh, of exactly the same kind as the one that Frege and Russell had. So it's not a dead issue. So just as people thought the Frege Russell theory was definitely correct for a long time, and then people thought Kripke's criticism was definitely correct for a long time, well, it turns out nobody's definitely correct, and it's difficult to. You, you can often reformulate theories in different ways, and it would be surprising if the description theory had simply nothing to be said for it, it was just a big mistake. And people can misformulate theories and put them in ways which are not put them at their best advantage, but it would be doubtful if it was just completely an error. And Kripke himself acknowledges that uh, there are lots of difficulties about his own view of names, which he can't resolve, which are resolved by the description theory. So there's a lot of good reason to want to keep a description theory. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, in the case of, uh, of Kripke, the critique arose in the context of new thinking about semantics around that time, and that new thinking was challenging in general the orthodoxy which had prevailed throughout the previous, whatever it was, 50 years or so. I've um, always thought that Kripke's uh, causal chain theory of names was, was attractive as far as it went, but as I read your, your critique of that, you're arguing that that still leaves some questions unanswered fundamentally. I wonder if you... Am, am I right in summarizing it that way? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the causal theory of reference is not really a theory of, of the semantics of names. And there, are two, there are two theories that Kripke plays with in there. One is a theory of how names get their reference. That's the causal theory. 
The other theory is about the meaning of names. That's what's called the million or direct reference theory, that the meaning of a name is just its bearer. So these two different, now sometimes people conflate these two things, but they're very different issues. So the objections to them are also very different. The objections to the million theory are just a classic Frege objection. So how do you account for identity statements? If the meaning of Hesperus is the same as the meaning of phosphorus, how do you explain? You know, so it's the same old problem. Now, Kripke doesn't resolve that problem at all. It's still there, nor does anybody. People have tried to, but it's very, very difficult to, to get around that. Now, as, as to the other theory, that had a different impact and has different issues. It's a theory of, see, in the description theory, the, the description has two roles. One is it gives the sense of the name and meaning of the name. And the other one is it says what the mechanism of reference is, how the name refers to what it refers to. Kripke's got two theories, you see, where the, in the description theory, there's only one thing doing both jobs. So it's meant to be a, a theory of how of the mechanism of reference, how, how the name gets to refer to something. And the idea is there's this long historical causal chain of people intending to refer to a certain person by a name, and people in later stages of the chain rely on uh, the speech acts of earlier people in the chain, going back to the time at which the original person was baptized. So the name at Plato, somebody's baptized Plato, and then uh, this is passed on down the generations. So there are a lot of detailed problems about about this kind of thing having to do with reference shift. You know, how do things, can't people shift the reference over time? You know, what's the exact nature of this? He calls it a causal theory. Sometimes it's called an historical chain theory. It, it actually essentially involves intentions to refer to the same thing. So it doesn't in no way an analysis of the concept of reference because it uses the idea of intending to refer. Now, people then looked at that and they saw in it something that Kripke, I think, didn't, didn't intend to, to endorse, which was, Maybe this would be a way to, as they say, naturalize reference. So we, we see reference as a causal relation between a word in a language and an object in the world. And this way of looking at things, you cut out these speakers with their intending, intentions to refer, and you just start talking about these causal, effectively physical relations between words and bits of the world, and you try to construct a theory of reference out of that. And there are huge problems with that approach, you know, which have been amply discussed. I don't talk about them in the book at all. They go into far more, you know, advanced literature, Foda and people trying to, Dretzky, trying to deal with that. Uh, you know, and that's a very much an open question. I'm not very uh, convinced by it myself. Um, but so but Kripke, it, Kripke kind of inspired that without himself sub- subscribing to it. It's worth noticing, though, again in this, that Kripke didn't invent that idea. In fact, I think he refers to Geech. Uh, the apostolic succession theory of references already having said something along those lines. It's a reasonable sort of piece of descriptive linguistics. Um, you know, there's something right about it. And other people like Putnam talked about referential deference, acknowledging the social character of names where one person gets a name from another and that led to other quite fruitful investigations of, of language. So that, that ramified into different, different areas. We'll come on, hopefully, to talk about um, Donnellan and Kaplan's uh, responses that in, in chapters four and five. Before that, there's uh, a chapter on Russell, of course, his work on definite descriptions. Again, I was really interested by the, the context you situate that in, which is uh, in terms of uh, Meinong's views on subsistence. Right. Could you say a bit about that? Well, Meinong had a view around the time where Russell first became a professional philosopher, and Meinong was very interested in 
phrases like the Golden Mountain, which don't refer to anything, or at least seem not to refer to anything, and how you account for their semantics. And his theory was you need to distinguish between existence and subsistence, so that the Golden Mountain is something we can think about, but it doesn't exist, or Sherlock Holmes, or anything like that. So he said it subsists. And so the idea was these so-called empty uh, names, or empty definite descriptions, are not really empty. They designate these shadowy entities which merely subsist. Now, Russell at one time was convinced by this because he, he couldn't see a way around it. You know, he, he, indeed, it's a difficult problem has to see a way around it. So primarily, Russell was trying to avoid mind-on-less ontology in the semantics of descriptions and also of names. And the theory of descriptions arose in that effort. He saw a way to avoid mind-on-less ontology. So he really was developing a semantic theory, a linguistic theory, as a way of solving a metaphysical problem. And that's what, you have to understand that context to understand what was going on in that. It wasn't just that he was came along and said, oh, look, at here's a nice theory of what the F means, you know, the King of France means, and I'll tell you what it is. It was meant to be solving substantive philosophical problems. That's why it was so important uh, in the history of analytic philosophy, because it gave people the idea that age-old metaphysical problems, which were very difficult to resolve and produce very disturbing consequences, might be resolved by linguistic analysis. So the theory of descriptions really is what I'd say caused linguistic philosophy, the doctrine that you could somehow deal with metaphysical conundrums by close attention to the logic of ordinary language. That's what that's what the theory of descriptions led to. So it was motivated by Meinong's apparently extravagant ontology, and it led ultimately to the ordinary language philosophy we, we associate with Wilde and Austin and later Wittgenstein. So, so it plays a very pivotal role in the history of 20th century philosophy, as well as being in its own right, you know, an interesting theory about the semantics of descriptions. It's interesting you should you should point out the relation to ordinary language philosophy because I, I got the impression in the in the chapter you also point to the the relation between Russell's conceptions and subsequent work by the likes of Montague, the idea of um, formalizing yeah. natural language in a particular way, which I, I suspect that you're or I get the impression you think it was perhaps a wrong track in some respects. Would that be fair? Well, uh, I do think that Russell was the originator of that formal approach to language. Um, Russell, after all, working from Frege's work on logic, wrote Principia Mathematica, which is, was the real first formalization of, of logic that we have, and gave the idea that we might use that formalization in our understanding of, of natural languages. And so people like Montague and the uh, people who did intentional semantics, Carnap and so on, were stimulated by that, that model that Russell provided. Uh, you know, the question of the significance of that as a philosophy of language, I mean, there are two questions really. Is it a good way to do linguistics? And now is it a good way to do philosophy of language? As a philosopher, philosophy of language, it's limited because it doesn't address itself to some more foundational questions. Uh, what's the nature of reference, for instance? It just sort of gives you a nice formal model for the language and, you know, analysis of logical form, which is fine. Then there's the question of, is that all there is to philosophy of language, um, that kind of formal approach? And, you know, the standard point there is that it omits the more pragmatic aspects of language use while maybe giving a nice account of 
of the uh, semantics, the logical structure of, of language. So I think I, myself, I'm sort of pluralist about this. I think that uh, there's room for many approaches to philosophy of language. And what you need to do is just interweave the formal type approach, the Russell Montague, let's think of it that way, with the Austin Searle Rice approach. And then I think there are others. I mean, I, if you start getting into my own philosophical views, I think we should go much further afield than that. I, I think that we need to integrate philosophy of language much more closely with biology, certainly with philosophy of mind. I even think that it's not, you can't un- understand the nature of meaning without understanding consciousness. So I, I, w- I would go much further and say that philosophy of language is even adding in, even when you put together the things I just mentioned involving pragmatics and semantics and and Chomsky, of course, as well. Even you have to go beyond that to go into questions of the relationship between meaning and mind in general, particularly consciousness, questions of how language could have evolved to begin with, questions of how it's human language related to animal language. I think those questions are only just being discussed. I have have a book coming out, actually, in in the autumn. It's called Prehension, The Hand in the Emergence of Humanity. And that book is is about largely about language, and it's trying to understand how language arose in prehistoric human populations. And I claim that sign language was the first form of language, and that originated from the way we were using our hands in other contexts. And I'm trying to give a very uh, evolutionary kind of explanation of how references and started and so forth. So I, so I think that, uh, you know, I think well, the more the merrier. I think we need a lot of different approaches. And there's, it's, there's a sort of sectarianism that is afflicts academics that's gone on in philosophy of language where people sort of want to inflate their own approach and downgrade others. And there are fashions where suddenly people think, oh, it's all about logical semantics. Then are fashions where it's all about language use and they neglect the others. But, you know, really it's a, it's a very multifaceted phenomenon language that needs to needs to be addressed from from every aspect i'm very tempted to ask you more about the uh, about the evolutionary basis but if i do i won't have time to ask the questions i want to ask you about chapters four five and i think six um deal with various uh consequences or responses to the frigga russell approach um from Donald and Kaplan and Evans. Right. I'm going to zoom in here on the, on the um, Kaplan's idea about a demonstrative weight, where you argue the heart of his theory is the distinction between character and content. Right. How do you see that as a, as a solution to these? Well, what Kaplan's really saying is that we can't make do with the sense-reference distinction. We need another distinction to understand indexicals, which is, he calls, the character-content distinction. And character, essentially, is not the same as sense. Now, the, the intuitive point here is extremely obvious, although theoretically there's a lot of controversy about it. The intuitive point is, if I take a demonstrative, lexical, say the word I, people can use the word I to refer to themselves. So if I say I, I refer to me. If you say I, you refer to you, and so forth. And yet, the meaning, if you ask what the meaning of the word I is in the language, it's not something specific to the individual using it. The reference is specific. Right? Who, who, uses, who says I depends on the determines who's referred to with that, with that utterance of the word. 
But if you look at the meaning of the word, the word I, well, it's common to everybody who uses it. It just it has the same meaning for everybody. So that meaning can't be a sense. Because sense in Frege's system determines reference. But the meaning of the word I does not determine what it refers to. If you just if you come across the word I written down somewhere, it doesn't refer to anything. Unless somebody utters it in a context, it doesn't have a reference. If you come across a definite description written down somewhere, it says the capital of France, it refers to Paris. It doesn't matter what context it is, right? So indexals are context dependent, and that means that their meaning, which he calls Captain calls character, is something which needs to be supplemented by a context in order to get a reference. The content, as he understands it, is what you get when you do supplement the character with the context. And so the content intuitively is, is the reference of the thing. So if I'm trying to analyze my utterance of the sentence, um, I am comfortable right now, you need to look at two levels. You're, you're going to look at the character level and you're going to look at the content level. Content of that sentence is Colin McGinn is comfortable now. But the character is, is something which can be shifted from person to person. Now, if you look at somebody else who says, I am comfortable, it's a different content because it now refers to that person who says it. But the character is the same. Captain's key point is that we can't construe the semantics of indexicals, which require this character content distinction, on the model of Frege's sense reference distinction, which is to say, really, we can't construe an indexical as a definite description. So the definite description model is wrong. Now, historically, as we said earlier, people were recognizing that it was wrong for names, or at least it was thought to be wrong for names. But Kaplan really drives the point home completely because it's clear that it's wrong for indexicals. I mean, I, I'm saying it's clear. I hope I'm not going to be refuted eventually. But, but hardly anybody thinks that a classic description theory of indexicals is going to get you anywhere. anywhere. It's part of a point, I think, which really goes to Strawson more than anybody else, um, which is that if you're looking at the referential apparatus of a natural language, the, the foundation of it is not predicates, which form definite descriptions and general and so forth. It's the foundation is demonstratives. We, rely, we refer to things in our environment by means of demonstratives, which means we rely on our context. We usually can't, I mean, as Dawson's point was, we can't, we can't refer to things by knowing general descriptions which only a particular object satisfies. We don't know those descriptions for the most part. I'm looking out of my window, I'm seeing thousands of leaves. How am I going to refer to one of those leaves with a, with a definite description? I might say, well, the, the leaf from, the leaf, you know, second, tenth one up from that leaf, but now I've just used that leaf. You can't get away from it. So, Demonstratives are basic. So Captain's point about that was, yes, demonstratives are basic, that's Dawson's observation, but demonstratives function in a way which is semantically completely different from definite descriptions. And they are the basis of the entire referential apparatus. And so it turns out that nearly every definite description you use contains either a demonstrative or a name. And then when you look at the name, the name is always backed by a demonstrative. So demonstratives are the key. So I think what Kaplan, the broader significance of Kaplan is, Let's move away from both descriptions or names as the primary referential devices, as Reagan Russell in effect thought, and recognize instead that demonstratives are the primary referential devices, and that will change our whole conception of how language works. Yes, you, you make that point actually in um, 
the chapter on Kripke's uh, paper, as I, as I recall, that uh, uniquely identified definite descriptions contain other names, and we end up with the demonstratives at the, at the end of the chain. Exactly. So, you know, if I were, if I were revising Kripke's arguments, I would have put a lot more emphasis on the ineliminability of the demonstratives in, in, in reference altogether. So the one problem with the description theory of names is the descriptions have to embed either names or demonstratives. And once they do, you can see that they're not basic. The descriptions are not basic. It turns out that, you, that the basic ones are going to be demonstratives and they can't be explained by descriptions. So we already can see that demonstratives are not explicable by description theory. So not very surprising if names are not explicable that way either. I'd like to turn, if I may, to Chapter 7, where you discuss Putnam's work on semantic externalism. Um, and here you argue a, a very interesting point, I thought, that while Putnam takes his thought experiment to show that meaning is not in the head right. under the assumption that meaning determines reference, you argue there's another possibility here. Right. Exactly. Well, Putnam, of course, as I say, recognizes that possibility in his, in his classic paper. That one thing you might suppose is that meaning doesn't determine reference. Now, once you've absorbed your Kaplan, you're already on board for that. You know, you already, you already know that meaning doesn't determine reference because character is meaning and it doesn't determine content. That's, that's what it's all about. So there's Putnam saying that there's a demonstrative element, an indexical element to natural kind terms. Now you can join that with Kaplan and you say, well, if, if their meaning is partly constituted by a demonstrative and the character doesn't determine the content, then we know that the meaning of a natural kind term does not determine its reference, that is, its, its content. And that's just a trivial consequence of the character content distinction. So, where, as you say, where Putnam concludes the article, begins and concludes the article by saying, so he's shown meaning isn't in the head. Not really. He's, he's shown that content isn't in the head. He hasn't shown that character isn't in the head. But everything he says, is, says suggests that character is in the head. It's just that character has to combine with context to give reference. That's what we know from understanding demonstratives clearly. So that would be a, a just as good a conclusion to draw from Putnam's uh, Twin Earth examples as the one he draws, and in fact a far more intuitive and natural conclusion to draw from it. So, you know, we could say a meaning is in the head, because um, meaning is, is character. Uh, content isn't in the head. That's an interesting point, you know, um, in itself. But that's, but that's not all that surprising. Maybe it's a little bit surprising that natural kind terms turn out to function the way demonstratives are. But I, I give examples like, you know, if I'm, these are by now quite familiar kinds of examples, you know, you're, you're pointing at an animal, you know, and you say that elephant, uh, you know, there's an elephant in front of you, looks a certain way and so forth, has a certain size and so forth. And then you have a counterpart somewhere else who's pointing to an elephant in front of him saying that elephant, and it looks exactly the same, same size and so forth. Well, there's nothing in your head that determines which elephant you're pointing to. Of course not. <laughs> what determines it is which one's in front of you. <laughs> so that's what determines it. So if somebody say, so I made an amazing discovery, meaning isn't in the head. You want to say, well, it's not that amazing. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's pretty predictable, given the way indexicals work. So, there, so I think that, you know, I, you know Putnam, people were excited by, by Putnam, you know, rightly so, but the theoretical apparatus to interpret the consequences of his thought experiments were not quite articulated well enough at the time to to be able to see what was being shown and what wasn't being shown. This is why I myself think that Clapton's work, though it's very widely appreciated 
was not, and perhaps it still isn't, sufficiently appreciated, and people aren't understanding quite clearly enough that it's quite revolutionary in, in, in the philosophy of language, and it needs and it still needs to be absorbed. So that's when you find Evans trying to stick to the old way of doing semantics and gets himself into all sorts of very convoluted ideas, which you know they're ingenious, but they don't seem to me to be to make very much sense in the end. And you wonder even what the theory is supposed to be. If it's meant to be a theory of sense and reference, I, I don't think it just I, doesn't hold water. I don't think. It's because people found it very difficult, I think, to um, abandon the classic picture. And Kaplan's work does involve you in abandoning it. And that's why I always found his work rather important. And that's why I wanted to emphasize in the, in the book how important it is and what its consequences are. Yes, indeed. Um, does, does Putnam's understanding of meaning match Kaplan's understanding of character, or is there some... I think, um, I think Putnam's understanding of meaning is essentially Kaplan's content. See, so the content of my saying I'm comfortable is Colin McGuinness comfortable. The concept, content of somebody else saying that is John Smith is comfortable. Two different contents depending on the context in which it's said. And that's the that's same the same kind of notion as, as Putnam on Earth we're referring to water, on Twin Earth they're referring to another thing, you know, another liquid called retro, I you call it retro. In other words, the content is different, what's, what's being referred to. Uh, it's okay. I mean, in subsequent work, people started to distinguish between narrow content and broad content. This also was inspired by Kaplan's distinction. It's, I think I like Kaplan's terminology and conceptualization better um, because it emphasizes these, the, difference of, the essential difference of these two kinds of meaning. But Putnam's idea of, of, of meaning is essentially broad content or wide content. Not, not narrow content. So on his, if you describe his examples in those terms, there's the same narrow content on Earth and Twin Earth, and a different broad content. And broad content is not in the head. And that's a worthwhile point, you know. I think it's, it's perfectly true. Uh, the broad content isn't in the head, and that was, that was Kaplan's point. Um, when you use an indexical, the content is not determined by your mental state, it's determined by your context. In Chapter 8, we turn to Tusky's theory of truth, which alluded to earlier in uh, earlier in this interview is something that has been mystified or is perceived to have some kind of mystical uh, yeah. content to it, but which is in fact reasonably clear. Is that is that fair? Yes, I mean it, I think it's it is pretty clear. I I don't really I don't find in Tarski any mystifying going on. I think you know it's a little bit technical. Some parts of it I don't like, uh, but the basic idea is fairly clear, but also I think when you see what the basic idea is, its limitations also become clearer too, what it does and what it doesn't do in the way of defining truth. I mean, it, I think what the first point to remember here is Tarski is trying to do something perfectly orthodox, which is give an analysis of, the wor- of a word. As he says, he wants to catch hold of the actual meaning of the word true, just as a, somebody wants to analyze the word no. Analysis of knowledge. It's a very so it's a very straightforward thing that he that he's trying to do, and he considers various theories at the beginning of the paper, which try to give a straightforward analysis of the word true. In fact, I, one of the theories he gives, I've recently started to think, is rather a good theory and, and illuminating. Uh, that's the theory that a statement is true if and only if it designates an existing state of affairs. 
I like it because it uses the concept of existence to define truth, which I think is a nice idea. So so Tarski is in the same business as that that kind of theory. He's trying to say what it is. He just does it in a particular way. And the way he does it is he doesn't have a very general account like that, where you say, take any statement whatsoever. That statement is true if and only if he designates an existing state of affairs. He has a much more roundabout way of doing it, you know, which has to do with the T sentences. So the the essential point to understand in Tarski is the idea of partial definition. His idea is if I write out a particular T sentence, like snow is white is true if and only if snow is white, that defines truth partially with respect to one sentence of one language. It gives, you know, a, a fragment of what truth is, a little bit of it, of what truth is. The par- he calls it a partial definition. So now if you take a language containing a certain number of sentences, let's say it's a finite number to start with, let's say it's got 100 sentences in, well, you'll have a complete definition of truth for that language if you have a partial definition for all those sentences. So what do you do? You just write a conjunction of all those partial definitions, and then you'll have a, a definition of truth for the whole language. You just It's just a totality of all the partial definitions. Now, once you see that point, it's all technicality after that. And now you've got to deal with, well, you know, languages don't really have a finite number of sentences. They usually have an infinite number because there are iterative devices in them. And so the, the mechanics of Tarski's theory with the axioms and the recursion and so forth, that's just dealing with that, that point, just trying to get so you can finitely axiomatize it. That's just technic, technical logic. It doesn't affect the philosophy at all, really. It's quite good. It's quite nice because it reveals the semantic structure or a semantic structure of sentences. So it's, it's useful. So that what Davidson picked up on was that. Davidson wasn't interested in defining truth. But once you see that, you see that you see a limitation already because now you define truth for one language. Well, there is not just one language. So you've got to define it for all the languages separately. There's no one definition. The, the original definition about a statement, it refers to a statement uttered by anyone in any language anywhere. You know, any human language, any Martian language, or anything where statements are made, you've got a definition. But to ask me theory, you have to have a huge list of all those languages, write out all the T sentences, form the conjunction of them, and say, well, this is the li- this is the the totality of all the partial definitions, so it defines truth for all these languages. And then you've still got possible language, language which doesn't define truth for. So there's a feeling it doesn't quite say what you want a theory of truth to say, which is to say what it is, what truth is in general. Same way, if somebody was trying to explain what knowledge is, and they said, well, I'm not going to tell you something of the form X knows that P, if only if X has a belief, true justified belief in P. I'm rather going to give you a nice long list you know, of Somebody knows this and you know this, and somebody knows that and this. You think, well, I wanted something. I want you to tell me what truth is, what truth or knowledge is in itself. Give me an analysis. I don't want a long list of these partial definitions. Um, that's one point that can be made about it. Now, you know, for Tarski's purposes, you know, Tarski had his own purposes. He wanted to avoid the paradoxes. You know, that's one thing. He had other. He wanted a theory which which was fitted in nicely with with um, Semantics of formal languages, you know, to, uh, that was developing and the theorems that have been proved about languages, you know, oh, and I'm scholar and so forth. So he wanted to have a theory that fitted in with that. The philosophical implications, I think, were not as important to him as people suppose. I think a philosopher looking at it is more inclined to say, well, this is a very impressive construction. I see it as all sorts of virtues, but it doesn't quite do what I was hoping. I wanted something a bit more general. I, I still don't feel as if I've got to the bottom of what truth is. As people have often felt that about Tarski, they think, well, aren't the T sentences sort of trivial? They aren't really telling you 
truth is. Whereas, see, by contrast, a theory like the one I mentioned, statement is true if it, if it um, designates this existing state of affairs, you feel there, well, that's telling me, now I think I know what, I know what a state of affairs is, I know what it is for state of affairs to exist, because some possible state of affairs don't exist. Or, you know, the classic correspondence theory corresponds to the facts, or in any of these theories, it does seem as if Tarski's theory is not quite doing what those theories do, however inadequate they are. Our time is running quite short, but I've come to just asking you about the last chapter and uh, Grice, where you discuss um, the implications of his work for the uh, substance of thought or the structure of thought in general. I wonder if you could uh, share your views on that. I don't. Did I say something about that? I don't recall that. The structure of thought or the substance of thought. Let me find I, 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 I discussed the implications of it for linguistic meaning as well as explaining the account of speaker meaning. Well, it was more the yes, more the question of what we uh, meant. Well, mental ease, although I don't use the word mental ease, but yeah. Well, um, there's a question. Grice's um, theory about speaker meaning, which of course he applies to sentence meaning, uh, eventually, that theory invokes propositional attitudes, particularly intention, but also belief, intending to produce a belief in an audience. So. There's the question, the question that actually arises, well, what are we going to say about these propositional attitudes? How are we going to analyze them? If it turned out that they essentially involved language, then we would be involved in a circle. We hadn't really explained language in terms of something outside language. We would find ourselves explaining language in terms of another language. So those who like the idea of a language of thought, mental ease, might well say, well, it's all very nice, this theory about speaker meaning and the, the consequent theory about the meaning of sentences in the public language. But since propositional attitudes in general rest upon an internal language, mental ease, uh, they're, not really, they're not really telling us in a foundational way how meaning is possible. They're presupposing meaning in this internal, possibly innate language. So, again, philosophically, the hope, the aspiration that we might get to the bottom of meaning and explain how symbols get to refer to things and how symbols express propositions, we haven't really done that because we're really assuming something. We're already assuming that in our, in our explanatory apparatus by bringing propositional attitudes. That brings in lots of difficult questions about the relationship between uh, mind and language and belief and uh, sentences and so forth. So, you know, can there be thought without language is one of the questions that comes up. Uh, that, that sometimes that's discussed, can there be thought without a public language, but there's also can there be thought without uh, an internal language? And, you know, I'm, I've got views about that myself, but I don't go into too much about that. But I, I don't think that there's any essential connection really between thought and language. So I, I think that Christ it's onto something that I think, going back to evolution for a moment, I think thought has been around for, let's say, millions of years before language ever even was thought of. <laughs> language is very recent development and very few species have it. And we're the only ones who have it to, to the degree that we have it, obviously, but, but there's bees and whales have, have language. But I think that thought has been around since the dinosaurs and probably before that, because um, uh, perception has been around and, you know, all that time. So I don't. So the idea that somehow or other thought, dinosaur thought, depends on 
the possession of an internal language with the structure of, say, a predicate calculus doesn't seem very credible to me. I would, I would think we need a far more biological account of what thought is uh, in order to, to explain the, the distribution of thought across the animal world. And so all of these issues, difficult issues, raised by Grice's theory. But having said that, I, I think the, the crux of Grice's theory and the good thing about it, it's one of the, I think one of the big breakthroughs in philosophy of language is just the analysis of speaker meaning. I think Grice did an amazing job of starts out the paper saying, you know, I'm going to distinguish between natural meaning and non-natural meaning, and he gives some examples. The bus conductor ringing the bell three times and so on. And then he says, now I'm going to give you an analysis of what speaker meaning is, non-natural meaning, he calls it. And he goes through some counterexamples, very ingenious counterexamples, which have become very famous, of course. And as a result, gives you this striking analysis in terms of intending to produce a belief by means of the audience's recognition. I intend that you to believe it. And he explains very well what that means. It's, it's difficult for people to grasp. And that's one, one of the reasons I take it slow in that chapter and try to understand very clearly. I don't just sort of recite the, the Gricean definition. I try to explain how Grice developed it, for what reason, what its significance is. But that's, I think, the key in Grice, and it's what's uh, uh, so impressive about it is it, it uses uh, the concept of intentions in this rather ingenious way to analyse what seems to be a different concept, the concept of meaning something by an utterance. And I think we finally understand from Grice that meaning something by an utterance is a matter of these intentions. Whether those intentions are themselves non-linguistic that's another question. You don't need to claim that they are. Uh, what's important is you've explained what speaker meaning is, hence communication is, a means of, of intention. I actually have a paper so I wrote recently. It's called Meaning Without Language, where I extend Rice's uh, point to make, I think it's a rather radical suggestion, that you can actually have Ricean intentions without there being any language in which you express them. And you can communicate by means of Christian intentions without there being any utterance of any symbol. You can just do it through direct brain connection, basically, the way it can be done. So you can see how if you adopt Grice's conception of what meaning is, that these Grice's intentions can be possessed without there being any public language at all. And therefore, it's possible to have communication between people without there being any language whatsoever. I think that point is not, so language can't be, meaning can't be used, for instance, because that, if there's a use, there has to be a symbol that's used. That's a further consequence. So I think, I still think Rice's theory is very rich, beginning to uh, investigating these things, and uh, its full consequences probably haven't even been digested sufficiently. I have to conclude now, but I, you've counseled here and elsewhere the, the um, desirability of a, more of a, uh, integration of philosophy of language with philosophy of mind in general. You also mentioned your work on prehension. What are your own research priorities going forward? Well, I'm in a very strange uh, position at the moment. I'm sort of officially retired, and so I've got more time to do research than I would when I was teaching. You know, and I've been teaching for 40 years before that. So I've been writing various papers, and, and to, much to my own surprise, I've written. At last count, I've got my list here. I think I've written 72 papers in the last year or so. In fact, I've I started writing two this morning. <laughs> things. I'm glad I've had a lot more time and I'm not, you know, having to deal with teaching 
class of language to undergraduates, say, I can, I can just think about whatever I want to. Uh, I have a book coming out on, it's called Inborn Knowledge, after my book about the hand and language and that, that kind of thing. It's about innateness and why Descartes was right, even in his strongest claim about innateness. So that's the book I've got coming out. But the articles I've written actually are about a great, a very wide variety of subjects. So they range from metaphysics and epistemology, philosophy of language, philosophy of mind, philosophy of religion, ethics, philosophy of biology, um, philosophy of logic. I've got my long list. I almost forget, almost forget what's in it. Um, and so many different uh, subjects, and I've um, I've got all these things uh, as you know papers I've written, which I'm you know eventually got to do something with them. Not quite sure. Might put them together into a book. I'm not sure. So I would say that my research interests at the moment are uh, plural. I've got lots of different things going on, and uh, um, returning to subjects I hadn't thought about for quite a while, um, and because of the freedom of time and so forth, that I've had to to think about things. And uh, yeah, that's it. Well, oh, plurality is good. It sounds like a fascinating um, future. I've got to look forward to. I mean, I, let me make one observation before, before we end. I, I, uh, I think that people should try to write philosophy in an accessible way. <laughs> you know, I mean, I try to write it in this book in an accessible way, but uh, I think people should try, and editors and everybody in the community of philosophy should try to encourage a more straightforward way of writing, where you come out with your view, you explain your view clearly, you don't have to go over everything in the literature and consider every possible objection. Uh, you know, focus a bit more on what have I got to say, you know, what are the good objections to it that I've, that I've got, and keep it as brief as possible. People have got a tendency, you know, because sociology is a profession, to try to pad out their resumes all the time with, you know, great long articles on things. And, you know, it's, it's I wish we could go back to people just writing things succinctly and clearly. Uh, not as much as you possibly can about as little as you, as you think, think you can get away with. You know, let's let's uh, let's have the ideas and, and not all the padding. You know, that, that sometimes goes with them. I think that's a very good, uh, very inspiring and encouraging thought, actually, to to take home with us. So let me conclude now and say, Colin McGinn, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. I've been talking to Colin McGinn about philosophy of language, the classics explained. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.